You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, and welcome to the Business Hour. I'm Ron Camacho, your host. And today's business is part two of Trees, which we talked about with my guests, Seth Hawkins and Marilyn Beckley, um, just a couple of weeks back. And now we're taking that uh, talk and, and extending it to talk a little more about trees. I want to read you, and I don't typically read the the, the, the promo that we send out uh, about the uh, upcoming program, but the, the subject matter on this was, Are Trees Critical to the Survival of Humankind? And it goes on to say, What organism can live for 2,000 years, clean the air of toxins, produce oxygen, significantly reduce erosion and flooding, lower the temperature in cities, act as fuel is one of the most durable, sustainable, and beautiful building materials? And the answer is wood. And wood comes from trees, and trees make up our forests. And if we don't manage our forests intelligently, life on Earth will not be the same. Seth Hawkins, um, who is with the Georgia Forestry Commission, is someone who's been educating a broad range of audiences, uh, along with hands-on forest management, Seth has uh, helped to uh, teach folks about good principles of forest management. Seth, do you pretty much agree with that introductory uh, statement? Um, yeah, yeah. So the Forestry Commission's main goal is just to help have a sustainable, healthy forest in the state of Georgia. So, um, Okay, so... Um, America's for, forests are definitely vital to um, our social, our uh, ecological, our economic well-being. Uh, and that's true for m- most nations. Uh, they play a vital role in providing benefits such as, I mentioned, clean air, water, environmental security, green infrastructure, habitat for fish and wildlife, and places of historic value and opportunities for uh, solitude and outdoor recreation. Um it also provides uh, communities um, with jobs, uh, and many jobs are through forest products and outdoor recreation, and other jobs come from the work we do to sustain and restore health to uh, make forests more resilient. Um, today, more than 80% of our citizens live in metropolitan areas, and that number is on the rise, uh, hence the importance of managing uh, community forests. Uh, most people connected to the outdoors uh, through their neighbor- are are connected through their neighborhood trees and and local greenways, their parks and and creeks and streams, the watershed, and our urban areas make up about three percent of our land area, but they contain roughly three point eight billion trees in the U.S., uh, covering one hundred and forty million acres of uh, urban and community forests, and. Uh, Seth, you're intimately involved in helping people understand all of that. I mean, the value of of forests um, to to everyone, but certainly to this residents of of Georgia. Um, how would you sum up uh, your role within the Georgia Forestry Commission? Um, I was characterizing much of what you do as educating people, but uh, tell us a little bit about 
more about your role. Um, yes. Yeah, so, again, Georgia Forestry Commission as a whole, um, our main mission is a sustainable, healthy forest, and that's you know rural forest or urban forests um, or community forests. Um, so I work as a community forester within GFC. So my main role um, really is kind of being backup for city, county governments, K-12 schools, public universities, civic groups, really any public entity and whatever their tree goals are. Um, whether that be tree planting initiatives, um, outreach. I do a lot of outreach and education for um, municipal staff, things like that, and a lot of them um, sometimes private company staff as well. Um, it's just all about getting the message out there of the importance of our community forests and how to maintain them and keep them because um, it's, it's, it's a big challenge having a well-maintained community forest. We've taken an organism that grows out in the woods just fine in its setting that it's evolved in, and we're planting it next to a sidewalk in a parking lot and we expect it to behave the same, and it's not going to. So there's a lot of challenges that go along with maintaining community forests, and that's just what we're kind of here for is to help communities and counties and whatnot help, help them out with that. So do you actually help communities fashion their uh, public policy related to trees, uh, which is totally different than um, community outreach in the form of education? Mm-hmm. I mean, they're related mm-hmm. um, because you're – educating people about the kinds of things that you're helping cities to then incorporate into their public policies or city ordinances. Um, are there, uh, is there still a disparity among um, cities? Uh, and you, of course, are most familiar with what's going on in the state of Georgia, but the state of Georgia is a great microcosm in, in, in many ways for the rest of the, the nation, not all states. Uh, in fact, my impression is that we're pretty much ahead of the curve for uh, most American states, but uh, nevertheless, it's a good microcosm. Uh, And have you found that we still have this major disparity among uh, cities where some are extremely uh, tree canopy and forest, urban forest sensitive, and others are really just beginning the process and engaging you to help them uh, kind of make up for lost time? Yeah. Um, so yeah, there is that disparity there. Um, I, thanks for the for the compliment on Georgia. I would like to think we're one of the leaders, especially at least in the southeast, um, but maybe na- nationally too. I would like to think we are. Um, but yeah, there's definitely a big disparity between you know different cities, and it's not just based on population size always. Um, you know, a tree canopy, a tree ordinance, or anything like that is really going to reflect the values of the members of that community. So it's all going to be driven by public comment and, you know, voting for the right uh, commission or council members to get, you know, those goals out there if we want to have environmentalism and community forests at the forefront of a community's goals. Um, so, yeah, and again, it's not based on population size. There's some larger cities that have prioritized tree canopy, um, and there's some that have prioritized other things. Um, and then there's definitely, but when you start getting in the smaller cities, it's much, much more prevalent for them to not have any kind of tree ordinances on the books or not have any kind of um, really just a direction for their community forest. Um, a lot of times it's very reactive in smaller communities. Um, larger cities typically have the funding and the resources and the expertise to be a little more proactive. And you really have to be proactive if you want to maintain a community forest in an urbanizing area. Um, and, you know, around the metro area of Atlanta, um, down around Augusta, Richmond County, Columbia County, down around Columbus, there's pockets of extreme expansion and growth right now in Georgia. Um, and what, when, you know, the cities that have not prioritized community forest or tree canopy in that development plans, in their development plans, 
are feeling that right now. Um, they're getting a lot of parking lots with not as many trees. They're getting a lot of um, just gray infrastructure where we could be using green infrastructure for things, which is more cost effective and more eco-friendly. Um, yeah, there's definitely a big disparity there, and that's kind of one of our main missions is getting out and helping educate people um, the importance, and not just importance to us personally, but importance to the whole community and importance financially. So, Yeah, I would imagine that in some cases there are some communities that are really uh, just beginning to understand that uh, if you build a parking lot, uh, you, you can counter the traditional wisdom of we need more parking spaces for people to park during the shopping season with if you have trees um, which provide shade and 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 a distinct measure of aesthetics as well but you know has uh, a, a range of benefits um, that more people will want to come and shop there throughout the year uh, I, I you know I think that that's something that uh, you know, there have been studies <clears throat> about that very subject, and, and you're probably educating them about something as basic as put trees in the parking lot and don't just think of parking spaces. Yeah, I mean, there's been studies showing that people will drive from further to a shop that has trees in front of it. They will spend more for parking. They will spend more time in that shop, buy more items. And even from just a parking lot management point of view, a blacktop parking lot that has tree canopy over can last about three times as long as blacktop that's just open, exposed to the sun. So it actually saves a lot of money in the long term to have good canopy over uh, asphalt. And, and, you know, the parking lot then becomes uh, uh, an example of what can happen throughout uh, a city because you expand that idea with trees uh, on the street, you know, on the sidewalks, and uh, you're providing shade and uh, reducing the heat uh, sink and and, uh, making... Uh, a place more livable. Mm-hmm. I want to give a, uh, you know, you and I recently attended a tree conference um, hosted by the Georgia Tree Council uh, and the uh, Georgia Forestry Commission. You were kind of co-hosts of the the uh, the conference, and, and, and I learned uh, a lot about what some cities are doing uh, on the leading edge, and, and the city of Columbus, Georgia, you know, unbeknownst to me, is is doing uh, are they are doing many things, um, and uh, one of them is they're just engaging people. Uh, you know, I, I was impressed that they had a few thousand members uh, uh, in their tree organization, but they have done uh, some really uh, great things, and so. Um, it's the perfect environment because, as you mentioned, it, there's a lot of growth, mm-hmm. population growth, mm-hmm. and so it's uh, a perfect city to to have that have that uh, sensitivity. Have, had you worked at all with uh, the city of Columbus? Uh, I haven't personally worked with city of Columbus. My counterpart that works that side of the state, he's worked, he's been very heavily involved with them um, since the beginning of his career. Uh, and Columbus actually is our longest-running tree city. I want to say it's 40 or 41 years they've been in the program. They were the first tree city in Georgia and have done it every year since. Um, so they've been on this train of thinking, forward thinking, as far as centering around tree canopy for over four decades now. Wow, that's that's pretty impressive. Um, well, today we're going to touch on issues that are common to forests throughout the U.S. and the world, for that matter. Um, you know, we mentioned unmanaged uh, forests, or we talked about it as managed forests. Um, but we're going to talk about um, smart principles of managing forest uh, areas and recreation areas 
invasive species and, and threats uh, to biodiversity will be something we'll touch on, uh, habitat uh, fragmentation, uh, and we'll um, even touch on the value of the Amazon forest to the, uh, to the planet in general. Let's, let's talk about um, managed forest uh, in general. And, and Seth, um, conversely, uh, is an unmanaged forest at the heart of the overall health of our urban, rural, and wilderness forests? And uh, would you describe what the range of uh, managed forest uh, really means? How does it translate uh, uh, on the ground? Yeah, yeah. So um, when we talk about managed forest, we typically talk about a forest that has, you know, a um, a stewardship or a long-term maintenance plan for that piece of property. Um, and that can involve, you know, prescribed burning regiments. That can um, involve um, prescribed thinning of the stands. Because, um, you know, if you leave a forest alone for 500 years, it's going to figure its way out to being an old-growth forest and basically manage itself. It was doing that for a long time before we came along and started doing timber operations or anything like that. Um, but because of human-caused disturbance and human activities, we've created these situations where there has to be some management to keep it just healthy and safe. Um, that can, you know, because if we go in after a clear cut, something like that, um, you'll have a lot of, you know, a lot of very thick growth in behind it, invasive species, things like that. Um, so again, just kind of human-caused activities have required some of that management in the long term, but it's something that we have to do from a safety point of view so we don't get fuel buildup for wildfires, so we don't lose trees to inv- um, insects and diseases and things like that. We're going to be taking a break here, um, but when we come back, we're going to talk uh, a little bit about um, burning, prescribed burning. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned thinning. We're here with Seth Hawkins of the Georgia Forestry Commission, and we're just going to be talking about what it takes to have healthy trees and the value of uh, a healthy forest um, to not only your community but uh, to the planet. Uh, And uh, that might sound pretty lofty, but uh, in fact what's uh, good for the trees of Georgia is pretty much good for the trees of the U.S. and for the rest of the world. We'll be back to talk more with Seth right after this break. My party chief said he wanted to go someplace he had never been before. So, I took him to the rear property line. Sound familiar? Are you tired of trudging all the way to the back of property lines? Why not take the steps to become a crew chief instead? Or even better, why not become a professional land surveyor and see your name stamped on that final survey? The Nettleman Institute of Land Surveying Engineering Technology is your next step. At NYSET, we believe you are the future of surveying. And we want to do everything we can to help you succeed at becoming a professional surveyor. NYSET offers the only online one-year certificate of land surveying program that includes all books, fees, and expenses in one simple price. Visit LandSurveyCareer.com to stop trucking through the mud and step into your future today.
If your health insurance premium is more than your mortgage, Ellen Deal with Ideal Solutions is here to help. Whether you're a small business owner, individual, family, or baby boomer, email MAGA45CAG at gmail.com, and I'll respond with three easy questions to help you determine if you can get away from Obamacare. As a 20-year veteran of the insurance industry, I'm here to help with all your insurance needs. Email Ellen Deal at MAGA45CAG at gmail.com. This is Ron Camacho, host of the Business Hour, on Fridays from 10 to 11 a.m. Join me as I talk with passionate professionals on a program that profiles the best businesses, business practices, and fascinating business professionals to get an insider view of how America works. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Business Hour. We're here with Seth Hawkins of the Georgia Forestry Commission, and we've been talking about the the value of trees uh, to communities, uh, the importance of managed forest, particularly in, in urban areas. And just before the break, uh, Seth was uh, talking about various aspects of managed forest and, and, and mentioned burning uh, and thinning. So... There's been lots uh, of uh, back and forth on the uh, conventional wisdom of prescribed burning, but uh, could you tell us, Seth, where we are currently uh, in the state of Georgia, and if you know whether that applies to um, the rest of the country, and certainly it takes on a whole other dimension when we're talking about places like um, the West Coast, um, where you have uh, conditions that render the forest uh, very susceptible to uh, to forest fires, but um, what's what in a state like our own where we don't have uh, rampant wildfires? Um, what's the uh, conventional wisdom about about prescribed burning? Um, so prescribed burning, um, if it can be done safely, in, you know, and it's, all, it's a situation-by-situation situation basis, but if it can done be, sa- be done safely, it's a great practice to do for the forest from a public safety point of view, from a forest health point of view. Um, so Because the southeastern forests are actually mostly comprised of fire-adapted species, um, and that's kind of a result of the Native Americans in the southeast used prescribed fire for thousands of years before we came along. Um, so it's kind of uh, precluded some species out. And like I said, a true southern forest is a fire-adapted ecosystem. So it actually um, thrives on that fire, and some species actually depend on fire to um, help them with the reproduction process, some tree species. And so the problem comes when you have population centers adjacent to forests. Correct. Uh, and so the nature of prescribed burning has to be carefully, carefully managed. Right. Um, because we're talking about... Um, people and structures uh, but you and I had uh, chatted um, briefly about um, Native Americans and you just said that for thousands and thousands of years and people forget we're talking thousands and thousands of years uh-huh. uh, of uh, the human population um, learning about and it's probably not clear exactly how they learned uh-huh. uh, that uh, a, uh, a cycle of burning uh, a forest um, that probably came through a few thousand years of just watching um, the forest burn and then regenerate itself and then they realized they could have a hand in uh, um, creating uh, a, f- a 
fire in an area um, that eventually would recover. They just kind of uh, may may have developed a, um, a, a consciousness about that uh, again over a long period of time. And then today, is it the um, the Georgia Forestry Commission itself or the U.S. Forestry Service that is involved in hands-on prescribed burning? Um, so both agencies do that. Um, Georgia Forestry Commission is very hands-on, uh, mostly with private landowners, um, helping them dig their fire breaks and, and, and making a burn plan and doing the prescribed fires safely because um, you have to have the right topography. You have to have the right weather. Weather's the big driving factor if it's safe or not, and that's also from a smoke management point of view, um, especially in the wildland urban interface, like around the metro area. Um, smoke management is the biggest safety issue because um, smoke can sock in a highway and reduce visibility on roads and things. So weather is a big, big thing. Um, so GFC is very heavily involved, hands-on. Um, the U.S. Forest Service also does some prescribed burning, um, but not quite as much as this has such a larger, vast amount of land to worry about. Um, and, you know, essentially, going back to what you were saying about the Native Americans, Essentially, you know, and there might be um, an archaeologist or someone or an anthropologist that knows better about how they actually discovered it, um, the, the use of prescribed fire. But basically what they were doing and what we're doing with prescribed fire is mimicking a natural disturbance. Um, you know, fires start from lightning strikes from different sources naturally in the woods without human involvement. And, um, and when you have those heavy fuel buildups, that's when you get your big wildfires. When we do, we're basically mimicking that natural disturbance with higher frequency to reduce those fuel loads and make it safer to do those prescribed burns. And and uh, you would probably take a totally different approach during periods of drought, I would imagine, or at least the activities mm-hmm. uh, just undertaken more carefully just because there's more fuel out there. Yeah, it, it's, it's a tough situation because if it's too damp out there, the fire won't carry and you don't really get any fuel elimination. But if it's too dry, then you have issues with embers spotting and spot fires outside your fire breaks. So, again, that's why you have to just have that certain nice special spot of uh, soil moisture and fuel moisture um, and humidity and wind direction. Um, And all those things kind of come together, and you have a safe day for prescribed burning. Aside from the fact that um, uh, the the West Coast is a much more arid environment than uh, the Southeast, uh, is the... the undergrowth uh, in the southeast, much like the undergrowth, I mean, does our forest look like their forest at all? Um, it's definitely a very different fuel loads here as opposed to out west. Um, out west, their forests are much more heavily comprised of carnivorous trees, pine trees, and pine needles just tend to carry fire much better than hardwood oak leaves. Um, southern oak leaves typically have a very waxy cuticle, have a lot of oils in their leaf that actually make um, a lot of native oaks, like live oaks, water oaks, things like that, are actually very fire resistant because of those waxy leaves, and they just won't carry a fire as well until they're super, super dried out. Um, but out west, really, it's kind of they have, they have three kind of three big things against them: um, the fuel load being that the pine needle buildup, the topography, and just their wind speed and variability in gusts, um, and just the arid environment. We're lucky here in the southeast that we get so many, um, you know, quote, safe days to do prescribed burning. Out west, they don't get near as many of those days, and it's just such a bigger area. So it's really hard to get rid of those fuel loads. And what kind of cycles are we talking about typically? Um, is it um, 
two to three years, three to five years, five to ten years? What 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 would be the cycle? Is it more than that? Um, it really depends on what the landowner's objective is. So, if someone's really managing their land for hunting, they might burn part or most of their land every year or two. Um, because a fresh burned area really encourages a lot of wildlife species to move in and propagate. Um, if you're doing timber production, it, it might be more on you know a five year rotation for your burns. It's really it's going to depend on the property, on the undergrowth type, and just kind of what the objective for that landowner is. But um, really, it can be as short as one year burn cycles to you know five or ten year cycles for truly managed land. Um. Th- what about the wildlife in these uh, situations, uh, Seth? Uh, is that something that you help uh, educate um, the uh, private landowners, for example, to uh, ensure, or is it just something that instinctively, I know there's probably children out there thinking about poor little Bambi, mm-hmm. as they should be, uh, and other creatures, uh, do they just, uh, is the process undertaken in such a way that the wildlife has a chance to relocate yeah yeah and a um, great example my niece actually asked me one time where did the bunny rabbits go in the woods this is when, when i was talking about prescribed fires and things um and so i explained to her that wildlife they, they have instincts they can hear better than us they can smell much better than us they smell the smoke they know a fire's coming and they just vacate the area um and a lot of like your burrowing animals your rabbits your rodents and things if they get under i think it's two centimeters of soil is all it takes to to insulate them from that fire moving across so the smaller animals can burrow down and hide from it larger animals can vacate the area temporarily but you'll see it all too often after a prescribed fire we run a good hot fire through it less than a day later deer and everything moving back in getting on that fresh browse and everything that comes up a few days later okay so for those of you out there where they were a little concerned that should put your mind at ease uh i, I appreciate that explanation so um what about thinning a forest um uh is this done um more at the commercial end of the spectrum than it is just for the health of a uh, forest or do they go hand in hand private landowners uh know they can thin their forest to keep their um their trees uh, healthier and at the same time sell off some of the trees? Yeah, um, so again, depends on management objectives. Um, but yeah, so for timber production, usually they will plant them in real good and tight at first and then do different amounts of thinning depending on what kind of product they're wanting to produce. Um, if they're trying to go for having like poles, which is what they use for like telephone poles, as opposed to pulp wood, they might keep it tighter spacing. Um, it really just depends on the market that's close to that timber owner and what their objective really is. But also just from a recreation or forest health point of view or wildlife point of view, um, thinning does improve the health of a forest. Um, an overstocked pine stand is much more susceptible to uh, southern pine beetle infestations and other disease and bug infestations. So when trees are having to work against each other to compete for resources, it weakens them and they're more susceptible to insects and disease. Um, so really there's a lot of great reasons to thin your timber out. And if you think about it, um, you're kind of, again, mimicking natural processes. If you look into an older forest, it's usually thinned out more. Just the larger trees have outcompeted, they're shading out the bottom, and you start to get a little bit of thinning. You get fewer larger trees in an older forest. So thinning kind of just perpet- mimics that natural process. You had also, we had had a conversation prior to the program we're talking about um I guess it comes down to, to tree density. I mean, there's a, a, a certain point where there's uh, diminishing returns on planting too many trees uh, too densely. Uh, and uh, 
I, I don't know who would be uh, the guilty parties, I, and I'm not uh, uh, inclined to want to identify guilty parties as much as to say, or to ask you rather, is that something that, that you help um, private landowners understand that uh, they should not overplant so that there isn't uh, too great a density? And I'm going to let you um, think about that. We're going to take another break. Uh, we're here with Seth Hawkins of the Georgia Forestry Commission. We've been talking about what it takes to manage forests intelligently and about the value of trees uh, and the forest in general. We'll be back with Seth right after this break. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Business Hour. I'm Ron Camacho, your host. And today we're with Seth Hawkins of the Georgia Forestry Commission. And we've been talking about the importance, the value of trees, uh, the importance of uh, intelligently managed forests, particularly in and around urban environments where, where there are people. Because as Seth pointed out, that in the in the wilderness, uh, a, a forest can a forest fire can uh, start up uh, due to lightning strikes, uh, and uh, will go through a cycle of uh, turning over the tree canopy in a in a very natural way. Whereas in other settings, it, it, there are prescribed burns. Um, and we then talked about the thinning of forests to keep them them healthy, 
And before the break, I was asking um, Seth about, uh, uh, is it true that uh, some property owners uh, can overplant? Uh, typically, I guess, commercial growers trying to get more uh, per acre out of uh, a tree forest. But is that is that true that you can overplant uh, uh, and create too high density of trees and that the trees don't uh, grow as well, they're not as healthy, and that one of the things you do is advise them on on, on appropriate density? Yeah, yes, for sure. So um, when you're planting pond timber, typically, um, there's different density rates they'll use. Um, but one, a really high density rate, um, is 720 trees per acre. So, I mean, that's a lot of tiny little pond trees crammed into that acre. And, and so those aren't left in perpetuity that way. So you plant on that, that tight so that they start to grow up and straight and just kind of, you know, kind of compete a little bit and make some start to grow into their spot. And then you go in as the years go down the road as they're starting to grow and thin those out. Um, now, it does happen sometimes where that planting happens and then maybe management objectives change, ownership of the land changes hands, just any number of things can happen where that thinning never occurs. And that's when you have these really densely stocked and overpacked um, stands that are really susceptible to disease, um, bugs, and wildfire risk as well. Now, another way that can happen is, um, so sometimes if um, a clear cut happens or something, and there's a few remaining trees, they might seed them, especially pine trees, might seed themselves in at like 2,000 trees per acre sometimes. You know, those prolifically seed around them because there's all the... You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Um, And those are highly susceptible to southern pine beetle and other beetle attacks and things. Um, So we definitely advise landowners on timing to thin, you know, how much to thin, things like that. Um, GFC can't actually formally cruise and evaluate timber, but we can definitely arm landowners with as much information as possible. And so when they do hire a consultant or a, ten- or a logger or something, they kind of know what they're doing when they're doing it. Um, I live on just shy of an acre, and it's kind of hard to imagine uh, the my backyard, which is about a half an acre, with 360 uh, uh, yeah. trees. Yeah. Uh, and also I hadn't noticed... Uh, a regeneration of of pine trees or any any well other kinds of trees are certainly pop up left and right but nothing uh that ever grows to uh significant maturity at least has in the last uh, 25 years and they typically won't in those overstock situations um it's gonna make it look like the trees might be five years old they could be 15 or 20 years old but they're so packed in there and competing their whole life they're never really going to fe- reach their full potential What's the uh, average uh, lifespan uh, for a north Georgia pine? Um, so kind of depends. So if you're talking production, so typically a pine stand um, we run on about 25 to 40-year rotations depending on site quality and, and specific pine species. Um, but, you know, loblolly pines is out in, out in the environment and pine trees. I mean, can live to be, you know, 1 to 200 years old. Really? In, in the right spots. Um, and so... But again, we just don't see those that often, um, just because pine trees are more susceptible in their long term to like wind throw, and as they get older and start to decline in vigor, um, to bug and disease attacks. So we don't see a lot of those super old pine trees. But yeah, there's um, can't remember the exact dimensions on the state champion loblolly pine, but it has to be 150 ballpark. 
And what about um, hardwoods? I, I know there's a, 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 a wide variety of hardwoods, mm-hmm. and their lifespans have to be varied as well. But um, let's say a, uh, a white oak. or yeah, so what, white What's the most common uh, hardwood in the southeast? Um, so it depends on what part of the southeast you're in. Obviously, you get south of the fall line in Georgia, you're talking about live oaks. Live oaks are just all over the place in south Georgia, um, which is great. They're wonderful trees. Um, you know, you get in the north part of the state. I'm not sure what the most predominant hardwood would be. White oak would be up there towards the top of the list. Um, and white oak's one of the longer-lived oak trees. I mean, you, uh, white oak could live two to 400 years old or more in the right spot. Um, the state champion live oak, by just a ballpark guesstimation, is probably 550 to 600 years old. Um, and so the way we determine the, the age, the ballpark age of these trees, we use something called growth factors. And you can Google this online if you just search tree growth factors. You'll find different tables from different sources. And basically what it is is um, it's a number, so it'll be like two, three, four, five, something like that. And you take the diameter at four and a half feet off the ground, which is called diameter at breast height, which is what foresters and arborists use. Um, take that diameter and multiply it by that growth factor for the associated species, and you'll get a ballpark age. Um, so that's kind of how we come up with, with those close ages of trees without having to take a core sample. The only way to really know for sure how old a tree is is to cut it down and count the rings. But obviously that's not the way to go. So, I, And and I want to revisit something that you had uh, touched upon in our previous session uh, when uh, Mary Lynn Beckley was with us uh, of the Georgia Tree Council. And I asked you then, and I'll ask you again, uh, about... Um, there's a popular conception that um, Georgia pines, pine trees in general, are not as uh, effective in uh, reducing uh, uh, carbon levels and uh, and producing oxygen. But but that's not really true because of the surface area of the pines. Would you tell us more about that? Right. So yeah, um, believe it or not, um, pine needles actually have more surface area on their foliage, which is their pine needles, than uh, deciduous trees do. Um, it's just organized differently, so it's just kind of a matter of um, of the geometry of it. There's, you know, it's a it's a cone essentially. Little needles, if you look at them real close, it's kind of a tapering uh, cylinder. So there's actually more surface area on that, which provides more opportunities for gas exchange with the atmosphere. So pines are actually really really good at taking in carbon and giving off oxygen and storing that carbon. Um, pines also play a great role in stormwater management as well. Again, that increased surface area provides more surface tension, can actually intercept more rainfall than a lot of deciduous trees. Plus, when you factor in the fact in wintertime, when it rains the most in Georgia, our deciduous trees don't have canopy. Pine trees still do. So they play a year-round role in that in that process. Um, something that's I- even more important than, than most people uh, have come to realize is, is uh, erosion control and, and uh, mitigating floods, particularly in urban areas uh, like cities throughout the southeast where there's vast networks of creeks and streams. Mm-hmm. I, I think we're beginning to understand the value of protecting the riparian buffers mm-hmm. uh, where uh, and in some cases, and I believe here in Sandy Springs, uh, they're beginning to, to look at uh, not just protection, but even planting of more trees around creeks and streams to prevent erosion mm-hmm. and uh, to to keep the uh, the watershed just healthier. Is, mm-hmm. is that your experience? Oh, yeah, yeah. So planting and keeping, really not only planting, but if we can keep those riparian areas undisturbed, that's ideal. So leaving the trees that are in place already there. 
that's holding the soil together. You're holding the stream bank together. And the more trees you have along your your drainage ditches and things like that, it's going to uptake more of that water. And that's less water that goes into the storm drain systems. That's less water that we as a community have to foot the bill to treat to get back into the drinking water system or to get it down the river. Right. I mean, people think in terms of trees as filtration systems for the air, or maybe they don't, but they are uh, significantly so. But also, uh, as you just mentioned, for uh, filtering water. Mm -hmm. And uh, so do they uh, actually help uh, in supplying our aquifers with uh, cleaner water? Yeah, yeah. Um, So uh, the vast majority of reservoir and drinking water in, in the state of Georgia either is comes from rain that falls on a forest or from what they call um, aquifer recharge zones that are usually located in forested areas. So forests play a huge role in helping to keep you know, generate water and get water to the streams, to our reservoirs, but also in cleaning it on the way. Um, you know, obviously we've all seen um, at the end of like a muddy road, you know, all that sediment washing down into the ditch, and that's all going straight into the storm drain that at some point has to be filtered out before it can be put into the reservoir, into the drinking water system. So, um, yeah, trees play a huge role in stormwater volume management and pollution filtration. Let's talk about um, invasive species and, and threats to biodiversity uh, in terms of uh, forests. Um, what are some of the uh, the issues that you help uh, communities better understand about, about in, invasive species in general, Seth? Yeah, um, so the Georgia Forestry Commission, um, you know, we as an agency, we all fight against invasive species. Um, we have a specific group of specialists, our, we call our forest health specialists, that that's one of their main tasks as well is helping to identify invasive species, where they're at, how much there is, and what's the best way to, to fix the problem, right? Um, so what we always try to tell people, or at least I myself, try to explain to people why invasive species are a problem. Um, because, you know, a lot of invasive species... For better or worse, they look really nice. Usually they're pretty. They're flashy, colorful flowers. There's something about them um, because, you know, the majority of the time, a lot of our invasive species are brought in through the nursery trade. And so people are buying them for a reason. Um, And so they buy them, but then no one thinks about, well, the fact they have no natural control here as they do in other parts of the world where these invasive species are coming from. Um, The problem with them is is they get out in the landscape, have no biological controls, and just, just multiply unchecked. And that starts to, starts to displace native plant species, which in then turn messes with the food web because native animals depend on native plants for their food supply or shelter or any different part of their, of their life cycle. And so that starts to displace the entire food web of an ecosystem. And uh, would you say that here in the southeast that um, kudzu and privet are two of the, the major culprits uh, or yeah. displacing uh, native species? Um, as far from an acreage point of view, privet is the biggest issue that we have in the state of Georgia. Um, kudzu uh, doesn't have near as many acres as privet um, when you look at it from an overall in- infestation acreage point of view. Um, but kudzu tends to be more like when you see it, you see a lot of it. It makes a complete desert. Um, it's the only thing that grows, and that creates a food desert for all the wildlife that used to depend on that area and the native plants. Um, you know, and privet has been just a huge issue. Um, I was actually working in Clark County yesterday trying to eradicate privet along the riverbanks, and it's a tough job um, to get it done and really get, get it gone. Um, you know, and privet, it's, it came to the nursery industry. You can still buy glossy privet in nurseries today, unfortunately. Um, 
Well, it kind of looks pretty in some sense, almost like ivy does, and yet it grows rampantly, doesn't it? And I'm a huge UGA football fan, but every game I watch between the hedges, those are Chinese privet hedges right there, so... (laughs) <laughs> Just say it. Yeah. Um, yeah, your point about them being brought in, invasive species uh, uh, introduced by uh, nurseries. Um, the uh, city of, uh, rather, the city of Sandy Springs, uh, where the station is located here in north metro Atlanta, is actually beginning to do some things uh, to eliminate um, invasive species in some of the uh, park-like settings, uh, one in particular along Marsh Creek, uh, working hand-in-hand uh, hand with the Conservancy uh, and the Environment Sandy Springs Group. Uh, we'll progressively uh, get better, uh, I assume, at eliminating uh, these harmful invasive species and uh, invasive species eradication. Um we're going to be taking a break. We'll be back with Seth Hawkins to talk more about trees, the forest, and uh, smart managed forests after this break. Get your pen and paper ready. If there's a move in your near future, I'm here to tell you that the folks I used and now recommend is around town movers. Timothy and the guys recently moved me and i am and was totally satisfied with a sometimes not so fun experience moving call timothy at 770-378-4708 and make it a good move and a good experience around town movers for that local or cross-country move timothy around town movers in my opinion are the best that's around town movers Call them. This is America's Web Radio. Would you like to have a show, talk about your business, or express your opinion on America's Web Radio? Just email gm at americaswebradio.com and we'll get back to you. Thank you. morning. My name is Mike Mizell. I'm a retired Army colonel and president of the Johns Creek Veterans Association. We meet in Newtown Park, and part of one of our projects is the installation of the Healing Wall, the half-scale model of the Vietnam Wall that traveled the United States. Well, it's coming to rest, and it's going to live in Johns Creek forever, the half-scale model. We're looking at a possibly a march implementation ribbon cutting ceremony and we're looking for donors and sponsors that want to help us in this great project you can donate at jcvets.org Listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Business Hour. I'm Ron Camacho, your host. I'm here with Seth Hawkins of the Georgia Forestry Commission, and we've been talking about trees, tree health, managed forests, the value of trees to various communities. Um, before the break, we were talking about invasive species 
and uh, the threat of invasive species to the health of a forest uh, because it's displacing native species, which are robbing nutrients um, and displacing the wildlife population and just upsetting the balance of uh, uh, the natural order for a forest uh, and its and its wildlife. Oh, oh, tell us about uh, forest uh, or habitat fragmentation. Uh, what does that mean, Seth? Yeah, so when we talk about forest fragmentation, um, basically we're talking about taking what used to be a forest and as development comes in, housing, something like that, we start breaking that whole forest area up into chunks. Um, and, you know, that's really, um, from the Georgia Forestry Commission point of view, we see forest fragmentation as the biggest threat to Georgia's forests, and that's both rural and community forests. Um, you know, the issues with that, so when you have a forested area, it's just, just so much better at handling storm water, at um, reducing the heat island effect and things like that. And so we talk about forested areas in terms of green infrastructure, which is using trees and vegetative material to manage things like heat islands, um, storm water, you know, all those things. Um, so gray infrastructure is your curb and gutter and things like that, which you have to have. It all works in concert. But we really encourage cities when we can to work more with green infrastructure. So when we start fragmenting that green infrastructure or that forest up, um, we start talking in terms of like green infrastructure hubs, kind of. So there'll be like a pocket of forest over here, pocket of forest over here, and over here. Um, so when those get completely fragmented, their efficacy for what they can do as far as ecosystem services goes way down. Uh, when you have those hubs still connected through green infrastructure corridors and wildlife corridors and stuff, um, they keep a lot more of their eff- efficacy for the benefits we get from them. And this is something that you help advise urban uh, centers, municipalities, and counties on is how yes. to maintain those uh, the connectivity of those urban hubs, those right, forest right. hubs. And it's not just, like I said, in the community forester, we, we try to start going towards the green infrastructure as a holistic approach to citywide management or landscape-wide management. It's not just planting trees. It's not just keeping erosion down it's it's all of those things working in concert together that form a green infrastructure plan for a community you know um because you're a forestry expert uh which does extend to uh to wildlife to the to the larger ecosystem uh, uh you and i had talked and and relating this to invasive species not just in the form of plants um we're having uh some problems with invasive uh, insects. Tell us a little bit about uh, uh, the problem with uh, um, some non-native insects. Yeah, yeah. So um, we've had um, some of the ones that really popped to my mind that I think would be most visible to the listeners. If anybody's been up in the mountains in northeast Georgia or as far as Gatlinburg and all that, the hemlock trees. Um, So the hemlock woolly adelgid is a tiny, tiny, tiny little insect that came from southeastern Asia. As a lot of our invasive plants and insects do, um, just because it's a very similar climate here to southeastern China and Asia, so we get a lot, you know, our plants kind of go back and forth. And we have some plants that are here, that have come from here, that are there now and causing the exact same problems on the other side of the ocean. So uh, it's a two-way street. Um, But a lot of times, so hemlock woolly adelgid is the one I think of now, and it's just devastated the hemlock trees in the mountains. Um, you know, emerald ash borer is another one that's talked about. It hasn't been as big of an impact in Georgia just because we don't have as many ash trees. But in the you know, central part of the U.S., where a city will have 25% of its trees are ash trees, and they've lost every single one of them 
in the last decade. Um, that's been a huge deal. That's been a huge deal. Um, you know, and then going back to um, you know Dutch elm disease, the elm trees that all started dying in the beginning of the century. Um, you know, mid-century. On a positive note, you did uh, mention to me that there was some work at the uh, University of Georgia with the in conjunction with the U.S. Forestry Department. And I would imagine the Georgia Forestry uh, Commission uh, to uh, uh, create. Uh, uh, trees which uh, are more um, resistant to uh, uh, in- insect infestations uh, and, and, and fungus uh, so that there are some uh, elm trees uh, that uh, might be more resistant? Yeah, yeah. So um, what they've done is um, taken, they found some American elm varieties or just individual trees that didn't get the Dutch elm disease for whatever reason. They just had a natural resistance in their in their variation of their genome. And they actually have cloned those a lot. And that's what that's so when you see American elms being planted now, they're usually Princeton or Jefferson American elms. Um, there's also a third variety I can't remember. Um, but they are they're clones of trees, of parent trees that were resistant to Dutch elm disease. Um, you know, the American Chestnut Foundation, they've actually bred um, a small bit of Chinese chestnut DNA into the new American chestnut cultivars. They give it a lot more resistant to the chestnut blight and the Phytoptera root rot that chestnuts get. Um, so it's really just the best we can do with that situation. Um, this isn't complete immunity. We're talking it's just more higher resistance to those issues. Well, a great example of um, managed uh, DNA, I guess, if you will, with relate uh, regarding uh, uh, non-native species of trees to 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 make our trees more healthy, and it's done through um, um, experimentation. Mm-hmm. Tell us about uh, Asian needle ants and uh, <laughs> uh, the uh, turo spiders. Yeah, um, so these are just, I was actually um, working out in a park in Clark County yesterday, and um, these were the two of the newest invasive insects that the park manager there is concerned about. Um, so juro spiders. Um, juro rather than juro, juro yes. Um, so they are really, really pretty to look at on a picture. I don't want to see them in real life. I don't like spiders so much. I'm a little scared of them. Um, but they're really pretty to look at. Bright colors. They have a golden web and everything, but they came from, um, I think, Japan. Um, they came over in packing material to a warehouse in Jefferson, and it is spread from Jackson County. So they're in Jackson Hall and now Clark County. Um, they're expected to spread across the whole. They're, they aren't really. Um, they don't know what the long term impact of the Juro spider is going to be yet. If it's going to displace native spiders or overfeed on native uh, prey insects, they're not sure. Um, so that's an example of just how easily it just came over in a box. And, and what does it look like, Seth? It's got like some bright reds and yellows and oranges. They're different ones. They're an orb spider variety, if you're familiar. And um, again, that golden web, it shines like golden thread in the sun. Um, it's pretty neat. Um, it's neat from that point of view. But like I said, we're worried about what the long-term impact. Now, the Asian needle ant you mentioned, um, that was a new one to me. I just ran into it yesterday. Um, it is an ant from Asia, and they call it a needle ant because when it bites, it feels like a hot needle poking you. Um, yeah, so it's not just a clever name. They um, think it's going to displace our invasive fire ants, so one invasive is going to be replaced by another. The big problem they see with the needle ant on the horizon is that it feeds primarily on termites that feed on downed woody debris in the woods. So if there's no more termites eating that downed woody debris, we're going to have a lot of dry wood build up in our forest, potentially, if these Asian needle ants really spread and are really prolific. The other problem with them is typically, like our invasive fire ants, will invade um, disturbed areas, disturbed soil, these Asian needle ants move into undisturbed, totally you know um, left alone forests. They'll just move in and colonize it and start feeding on the native termites. 
Seth, I know you uh, uh, spent some time with with uh, students uh, educating them about the value of trees in the forest, uh, and you probably deal with some very young uh, kids uh, that are just learning about uh, uh, the value of trees in the forest. And uh, what are some of the major takeaways that you want kids, because we can all benefit from those basic mm-hmm. uh, principles of smart forest management uh, simplified, mm-hmm. uh, like for a, a young student, what are what are what are Seth Hawkins' um, top set of things to be mindful of when it comes to managing the forest and the and trees? Yeah, um, and yeah, we work with kids from kindergarten all the way up until college. You'd be amazed how many second graders can explain photosynthesis to me. It's actually pretty impressive, right? Um, so I, I really think um, if people really would dig in and learn about the magic of photosynthesis, it's the closest thing we have to magic on the planet. Everything's predicated upon that. Um, so I think you really have an understanding of how plants work and what they really do for us. Um, and, and really, it's people understanding the value of green space and the value of trees. Um, because um, they're not just something to look at. They're an integral part of our lives. And um, so the more people and the more children and more young people that are coming up that realize that, that's great. Um, also, I think, you know, resources are more available to these young people. So for them to know what resources are out there, that's great, too. Yeah, and fortunately there is a, uh, a climate uh, that has evolved to, and you and I talked about this, um, being in an eco eco-friendly community or being personally more eco-friendly has become cooler than ever yeah. is that right yeah um, i've definitely noticed that um, when i go into the schools that the kids um are all about you know um green ideas and recycling and things like that things that when i was a little kid weren't really talked about that much it was kind of you know do your homework you know and it's <laughs> yeah and, and 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 we're not just having to use uh, uh methods of uh punishment for uh uh, infractions of uh, uh, maintaining a healthy environment. Mm-hmm. People are actually realizing that uh, it, it's the right thing to do. Right. Yeah. All too often in the past, I feel like companies and residents and, and just people in general have have played by the eco-friendly rules because they had to. But now I think people realize it's what we should be doing. Well, well I want to thank you personally uh, for doing what you do, uh, Seth, on behalf of protecting our trees, our forests, uh, working with communities to have healthier forests, uh, which in terms of uh, the larger picture helps the environment uh, uh, throughout uh, the state of Georgia and the southeast to be healthier. So thank you very much, Seth. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Business Hour here at America's Web Radio. We're on Fridays from 10 to 11 a.m. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you on the Internet and the radio next week. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.